Welcome to the Historical Motion Picture Organization, a podcast in which I interpret ancient historical events as if they were the basis for dramatized HBO-style productions. Our first fictional HBO production, The Poison King, will explore the life and times of King Mithridates VI of Pontus in his struggles against the Roman Republic and his attempts to preserve the existence of the waning Hellenistic world. In the previous episode, Mithridates consolidated his holdings across Anatolia and made the ultimate commitment against Rome, the organised butchery of 80,000 Romans in the Asiatic Vespers. With his lands cleansed of Roman parasites, Mithridates can now advance towards his next two major goals, the capture of Rhodes and the liberation of Greece itself. The stakes will continue to get higher and Mithridates will proceed on his evolution from man to myth as his titanic struggle against Rome engulfs the entire Near East. So sit back and close your eyes, unless you're driving, and let me take you back 2,000 years. The continuation of this epic saga brings us to episode 4 of our HBO series, The Poison King. When we last left our protagonist, things were going very well for Mithridates. He had liberated Anatolia from the Roman infestation and crushed his old enemies, the Bithynians. He had also sent Roman military forces running back to either mainland Greece or to the numerous Greek islands off the coast of the Aegean. This war is now officially sanctioned by Rome and Mithridates must surely be aware that his next moves must be undertaken quickly. The people of Rome will not stand for the absolute butchery of their fellow citizens. The Senate will not stand for the perceived humiliation of Rome by a mere eastern despot. If Mithridates gets away with his actions, it'll be open season for the rest of Rome's enemies. A far more serious and coordinated Roman response is coming. But Mithridates has two goals he wishes to accomplish before that. The conquest of Rhodes and the liberation of mainland Greece. The Siege of Rhodes is going to be a colossal, monumental battle and an absolute visual feast for the eyes of our viewers. It's also going to be quite a long, uninterrupted sequence, taking up a large section of episode 4. Frankly, this would be a budgetary nightmare, and it could raise some questions about devoting an entire episode to just one battle, especially when there are still even bigger military confrontations to come with Rome. But in the HMPO department, we dislike this 90% talk, 10% action ethos that most series seem to fall victim to. Therefore, we're going to give our viewers almost an hour to sit back and watch some absolutely batshit insane classical warfare go down. Dwayne W. Roller, in an excerpt from Empire of the Black Sea, describes the importance of the island city-state that was Rhodes. Quote, It was the most powerful independent state in the region, and both a major sea power and an early ally of Rome. Its empire extended to the mainland and included a number of South Aegean islands. It was also famous for its high degree of social welfare and its role as an intellectual centre. Because of its naval strength and its alliance with Rome, neutralising Rhodes was an essential part of Mithridates' strategy. End quote. The encounter begins with the Rhodians burning everything on their coast as soon as Mithridates' armada comes into sight, 
The outskirts of the city are set alight to deny Mithridates shelter or food. The Rhodians then dispatch their own fleet, under the command of the Greek admiral Damagoras. Damagoras, well versed in seaborne tactics, first steams out ahead, as if planning to engage Mithridates head on. But before the Pontic navy can encircle him, Damagoras has his ships whipped back around towards the port. He's too experienced to mistakenly think he can tackle Mithridates' enormous quinkareem, the largest battleship of the day. And from the perspective of the show, this is all just a teaser, really. I'll have the audience think we're about to get into an engagement, and then we'll pull back from the brink. But not for long. Mithridates camps in the burned-out ruins of the suburbs along the coast, while his ships begin to probe the harbour that Damagoras pulled back into. Mithridates' naval forces fight with zeal and glory, but the Rhodians are more experienced, and they begin to ram some of the Pontic vessels, sinking some and capturing others. The visuals alone from this segment would be wonderful. Imagine Rhodian ships physically ramming the Pontic ones. Wood splinters, sailors are heaved overboard, the deafening sound of the craft colliding. The Rhodians, in a forerunner to modern Navy Marines, board the Pontic ship. There's hand-to-hand fighting on the bows and sterns. The water below turns dark red with blood. It's chaos. The next naval showdown begins when the Rhodians send six of their smaller ships out to search for a lost one of their own. Mithridates, himself leading the flotilla, chases after them, but the Pontic ships aren't able to catch up to them. As sun begins to set, Mithridates, as Damagoras expects, orders the chase broken off and his ships sent back to Rhodes. Sunset turns to nightfall, and this is just a fantastic sequence to shoot here. The Rhodians, having correctly guessed that Mithridates would turn around and go back the way he sailed, now themselves turn around and follow him. Under the cover of darkness, they appear out of nowhere and begin ramming the Pontic fleet. Just imagine the visuals here. I see a full moon illuminating the waves in a translucent white hue. I hear the creaky wallop of the pointed end of the Rhodian ships penetrate into the Pontic ones. All hell breaks loose. There's screaming, shouting, people falling into the water. Fires are starting due to the Rhodians shooting flaming arrows across the waves. Mithridates is bellowing orders at his troops, desperately trying to get control of the situation. And during the utter confusion, an allied ship from the island city-state of Chios accidentally rams Mithridates' own flagship. This would be a great incident on screen. You know, the Pontic soldiers desperately trying to signal... The Chian ship steaming towards them, a tracking shot up to an extreme close-up of Mithridates' face right in the seconds before impact. Now his ship survives the impact, but the disharmony and the lack of communication are evident for all to see, and this incident puts serious doubts in Mithridates' head about the loyalties of his Greek allies. His paranoid thoughts swirl around. His mind continues to replay the collision. The seconds before the frantic hand gestures. In his mind's eye, he sees the face of the Chian sailor who rammed him. Was it an accident? Are they in bed with the Rhodians and the Romans? Was it betrayal? An attempted assassination? Either way, the glorious campaign to capture Rhodes isn't going very well so far. Mithridates has had an army waiting at the southwestern tip of Anatolia. This land invasion force is now sorely needed to inject some fresh energy and numbers into the mix. 
except it gets caught in a violent storm on the journey to Rhodes, allowing the Rhodian navy to easily slaughter the scattered and weather-beaten survivors. Pontic soldiers are drowning. They're being butchered or shot with arrows as they struggle in the water. The Rhodians might even physically drown some of them. It's merciless stuff. Mithridates gets a new glimmer of hope, however, when some Rhodian deserters present themselves and claim to have found a spot that would allow Pontic forces to get closer to the Rhodian defences. A combined land-naval attack is planned, but the plan turns to shit when Rhodian sentries detect the movements and light a fire. The rest of the Pontic army mistake this as a friendly signal, causing them to attack too early and blow the element of surprise. Again, the Rhodians outclass and outmaneuver Mithridates. Is it possible these deserters were double agents? I next envision a scene where Mithridates gathers his commanders, or at least the ones that haven't been killed yet, to discuss their increasingly limited options. But there's one wild card that our king hasn't played yet. In an exchange of nervous apprehension and battle-weary fatigue, the decision is made to employ the Sambuca. The Sambuca is an enormous siege weapon, a huge tower mounted between two ships with bridges designed to safely pass over city walls across an open body of water. It's rectangular in shape and thins as it reaches the top. When viewed from a distance, it appears to have the shape of a trapezoid. And this isn't the first time such a behemoth of a siege weapon was used in such a fashion in classical antiquity. In fact, it's not even the first time a device like this was used to attack roads. Adrian Mayer in The Poison King does a great job of describing the last event of this protracted siege. Quote, It was time to bring up the Sambuca. The enormous contraption, astride two ships, drew up alongside the outer seawall of the Temple of Isis. Mithridates' men laboured to operate the pulleys of the Sambuca to raise the bridge to the top of the wall, so that the soldiers, massed in small ships below with ladders, could swarm into the city. The Rhodians were struck with fear at the sight of the colossal siege machine. Mithridates' troops began to clamber up the Sambuca. Suddenly, a great cheer went up among the Rhodians. Mithridates' grand structure was collapsing under the weight of all the men. And just at that moment, a glowing apparition of the goddess Isis appeared atop her temple. The goddess hurled a great fireball down onto the Sambuca and the men clinging onto it. The huge contraption fell burning into the sea. End quote. Can you imagine that sight? The bridges, suspended hundreds of feet above the water, start to collapse under the weight of the troops running across them. I, I kind of see this framed in that golden hour part of the evening. You know, that shortly before sunset, the deep browns of the Sambuca against the red hues of the skies, the haunting screams of soldiers plummeting all the way down into the dark blue waters below. It's that strange time of day where it's dark down below, but it's bright higher up. I think a really extreme long shot would do this sequence justice. So far back that the Pontic soldiers look like ants swarming across the branch of a tree, until that branch snaps and falls into the abyss below. The bridge will break near its connection point at the top of the tower, slowly declining into an almost 180 degree fall. From afar we can hear the cheers of the Rhodian defenders. What an awful, mesmerising, mind-blowing sight this must have been. Terrible and brilliant all at the same time. 
And what of this great fireball hurled by Isis, the great mother goddess of Asia? What's the rational explanation for that? Could it be a mass of Rhodian fire projectiles set the Sambuca alight? Maybe some form of extraterrestrial object, like the comet allegedly witnessed at Mithridates' conception. Or a lightning bolt? Perhaps it was just Rhodian propaganda, invented retroactively to add further weight to their victory and boost the morale of their people. Or maybe there's no rational explanation. Maybe the goddess did indeed hurl a giant mass of flame down onto the invaders. Personally, I love the thought of a barrage of burning arrows and projectiles. The idea of Isis being responsible is cool, but this is a historical drama. It's not fantasy and it's not science fiction. But still in all, it's a cool thought to ponder. Ancient history always has that extra mysterious element to it. I'm a practical person at heart, but it's cool to wonder sometimes. The ancient world was so long ago. Who's to say it wasn't a more intangible, ethereal world than ours? Deflated, defeated, demoralised, Mithridates and his army decide enough is enough, and they depart Rhodes. Maybe the final shot of episode 4 could be the smouldering ruins of the Sambuca, strewn across the beach and the waters outside Rhodes. The siege of Rhodes is a stinging defeat for Mithridates. He's lost valuable men, ships and materials, and the defeat, especially specific aspects like the ship ramming and the collapse of the Sambuca, must have been an enormous blow to Mithridatic morale overall. But it wasn't a knockout blow either. Rhodes was strategically important, so an effort simply had to be made to take it. But Mithridates is still the master of Anatolia, and the upcoming invasion of Greece will be a bigger and more important struggle. So, this is going to be the conclusion of episode 4 of The Poison King. The siege is over, our protagonist lost, but he's got to dust himself up and keep going. Episode 5 of HBO's The Poison King begins with a massive invasion of Greece by the Mithridatic armies. It's a huge three-pronged assault. Mithridates is pouring vast amounts of soldiers into the Greek peninsula, despite his still-stinging defeat down south at Rhodes. Leading the northern prong is Arcathius, Mithridates' favourite son, with nearly 100,000 troops and 10,000 cavalry from many regions of the Pontic realm, Thrace, Sarmatia, Scythia, Armenia. The second prong is led by Archelaus, and invades southern and central Greece, taking the region of Attica and with it the vital city of Athens. If this is all sounding too easy, there's a few factors that explain this. The Roman presence in the Near East has been reduced significantly, and a lot of Greek city-states could see what way the wind was blowing. They could see that the initiative lay with Mithridates and promptly surrendered to him. Some Greeks no doubt were itching at the chance to throw off the Roman yoke and re-establish the Hellenic order in the East. Mithridates is all too happy to play the role of the charismatic leader who will lead such a revolution. The third prong is led by Metrophanes, a loyal lieutenant to Mithridates and Greek commander of his armies, and attacks the peninsula just north of Attica, Euboea. But the Romans aren't so easily beaten, and in a daring move, an outnumbered Roman commander, named Brutius, decides to try and blunt the advance into Macedonia. The Romans apparently butcher a lot of Arcathius's barbarian troops, as they drown after a minor naval encounter. Brutius quickly whirls back down to Boeotia, north of Attica, and forces another encounter at a place called Chironea. 
but in a great example of typical Roman red tape, he's forced to withdraw and return to Macedonia after a messenger named Lucullus arrives bearing news. Sulla has been victorious in his struggle with Marius and is now in command of the war against Mithridates. I'd almost place a kind of comedic hint into this scene. The Roman detachment under Brutius, all geared up to blunt the Mithridatic invasion, suddenly has to stop in its tracks and wait for the new command to take over. And just a note on Lucullus, he is a talented and resourceful Roman soldier and a protege of Sulla. Lucullus is going to be a major part of our show in future episodes. Mithridates himself is currently in Pergamon, celebrating what is seemingly a series of stunning victories, as his pan-Hellenistic army spreads out over Greece, while Anatolia remains secure, and his son Macaris becomes governor of the Bosphorus kingdom. But menacing omens continue to eat away at the king's psyche. Sulla was on his way to Greece with five Roman legions. An excerpt from The Poison King captures the mood of Mithridates at this time. Quote, This report must have sent an icy sliver of anxiety into Mithridates' already troubled mind. Far from the action, he could not personally supervise his armies in Greece, but he had great confidence in his excellent generals. And after all, how could Sulla's mere 30,000 troops prevail against Mithridates' myriads? But Sulla's men were battle-hardened, disciplined professionals. These tough veterans would fight ferociously for Sulla, as long as they were paid handsomely in plunder. And what sort of a man was their commander? The Roman biographer Plutarch paints a portrait of an arrogant, repellent character with a hypnotically commanding presence and fathomless hunger for power. Sulla won a reputation as a hard-driving, brave military leader. Shrewd and calculating, Sulla could also be rash and unpredictable. As Sulla and many other leaders well understood, Capricious behaviour made one seem godlike, and it kept friends and foes off balance. Alternating clemency with sudden brutality was a tried-and-true power trip, practised by autocrats of all eras, including Mithridates. End quote. But Sulla has troubles of his own. He's now been politically isolated and declared a public enemy of Rome by a man named Cinna. Lucius Cornelius Cinna, was a supporter of Marius in his civil war with Sulla. Cinna had the ability to hide his tyrannical desires under a veil of constitutional government, and was a huge influence on his son-in-law, a certain Julius Caesar. You see, Cinna has just won a consul seat in Rome, and he begins to undermine Sulla as soon as he's left for Greece, effectively cutting him off from official Senate support, which basically means no money or no line of supply from back home. And Sulla also now has to land in Mithridatic Greece, not Anatolia, where the Roman response should have come in the aftermath of the Vespers. Which Greek states are now in Mithridates' camp? Which ones are still loyal to Rome? Let's take a moment to remember that I've made a conscious decision to have both this episode and the previous one be comprised of a lot of action, battle scenes and violent confrontations. I want the viewers to be battle-fatigued themselves, This is a complicated time of violence and treachery. 
The classic three-act structure follows the general order of setup, confrontation and resolution. We are very much mired and bogged down in confrontation at this point. Sulla demands food and supplies from, and secures the allegiance of, Thebes, before he marches with the objective of capturing Athens, a goal which apparently obsessed him. But Sulla's in a real pinch here. The situation in Rome is critical for him, as his political enemies have not only cut him off from support, but are attacking his loyalists at home too. He's impatient to return and fix things there, but taking Athens won't be a quick or an easy task. The great city will have to be first put under siege, but such a strategy is useless without first capturing Piraeus, the port city that supplies Athens with food and goods via a series of long walls that create a corridor between Athens and the sea. So Sulla has to split his forces, with one half beginning to lay siege to Athens, while the other half plans their assault on Piraeus. The defenders, led by Archelaus, attempt several sorties from out behind their own walls, only being prevented from routing them by the unexpected return of a Roman woodcutting detail. Archelaus fights valiantly, barely making it back inside the fortifications in time. But Sulla doesn't have time. He needs Piraeus to fall so Athens can be cut off from supply and starved into submission. He begins building large mounds of earth for his siege weapons to fire projectiles into the defenders at particular angles. The Mithridatic troops burrow underground and cause the mound to collapse under the weight of the Roman equipment. Sulla then has his men dig countertunnels and now the Roman and Mithridatic forces engage each other underground. I mean, what a scene that would be to have in our show. You know, like a barely lit, claustrophobic tunnel, small groups of fighters killing each other in a tightly confined space. Just another great moment of colour and vibrancy. Meanwhile, above ground, Sulla orders flaming projectiles fired at the Greek watchtowers, but they don't succeed in setting them alight, because Archelaus has coated them in alum, which acts as a kind of fire retardant. Sulla's men are mystified and are becoming quite impatient. They light a bonfire of pine logs and shove them under exposed wooden beams of a damaged wall. Sulla then has them toss sulphur onto the flames, causing a spewing conflagration of toxic flames and causing a section of the wall to fall down. As Sulla's men attempt to charge the breach, the Mithridatic troops instead sally out to attack his now undefended siege machines. In the black of night, the entire area is lit up in reds, yellows, oranges and blues. A tit-for-tat flame war rages on. But Sulla is unable to press his advantage and miserably settles in for a longer siege. Lucullus, Sulla's resourceful lieutenant, embarks at this point on a dangerous quest. He slips past the Mithridatic blockade of the Aegean and begins to travel towards Ptolemaic Egypt. His mission is to recruit sailors and acquire ships from Roman allies such as Rhodes and the Ptolemies. Then, once again avoiding the Mithridatic navy, bring this armada back to Sulla's command. It's a risky mission with a limited chance of success, but if anyone's going to pull it off, it's Lucullus. Athens, however, might present a different story. Sulla orders that the groves of the many sacred areas surrounding Athens be hacked down to build more siege weapons. The Athenians, now on the brink of famine, apparently taunt the Romans from their walls, insulting their wives and making jokes about Sulla's appearance. The defense of Athens is led by the philosopher-tyrant Aristion. 
Sully is aware that the Athenians are starving, but he's caught between wanting them to suffer and then surrender out of starvation, and also the desire to return home quickly and fight his enemies there. But the defenders are delirious with hunger and are dying by the day, eventually leading to the Romans storming and destroying the great city. Adrienne Mayer in The Poison King describes the horrific carnage. Quote, the citizen soldiers defending the walls were courageous, fully committed to Mithridates and freedom, but they were no match for five Roman legions. The starving people wandering or dying inside were too frail to fight. At midnight, Sulla himself led the charge. Screaming war cries, the Roman soldiers vaulted over the walls and ran through the gates. They ran through the dark streets, swords drawn, lusting to carry out their leader's explicit orders to pillage, rape and massacre. No one, not even women and children, were to be spared. The city of Athens, which had survived burning by Xerxes nearly 500 years earlier, the Peloponnesian War and the Macedonian Conquest, was utterly destroyed. Amid terrifying trumpet blasts and blood-curdling cries, many of the hopeless mustered their last wisp of energy to rush onto the enemy's swords. Others, expecting no humanity from Sulla, killed their families and then themselves. As the Roman soldiers went about their bloody business, they found evidence of human flesh prepared as food in the houses. In this way, laments Appian, did Athens have her fill of horrors. The only way to gauge how many died that night was to measure how much ground was soaked in blood. End quote. Sulla executes Aristion, and then, still in a mist of pure rage, goes back down south to Piraeus, and finally leads a successful attack on the port. Archelaus, apparently astounded by the murderous, frenzied Roman attack, and now aware that Athens has been annihilated, takes his surviving men and escapes out to the Aegean. Setbacks and personal tragedies continue to rock Mithridates. The loss of Athens through its utter destruction by the vengeful Romans, is hard enough to bear, but he soon learns that Arcathius has died from illness in Macedonia. He had proven himself to be a valiant warrior, and died held in high esteem by Mithridates, who now mourns intensely for his favourite son in Pergamon. The opposing forces of Sulla and Archelaus begin to near one another, and Sulla is told by informants that the Mithridatic forces are camped in rocky hills above Chironea, not expecting to have to fight there. The Romans begin bombarding the Mithridatic camp with stones, huge boulders and other velocity projectiles. Taken by surprise, the Mithridatic forces stumble out without proper formation, and several thousand are massacred by the Roman legions who pin them in from the sides. I just want to quickly note three things here. One, this is the second time we're using the location of Chironea for a battle. Earlier in episode 4, there was a brief skirmish nearby, where Brutius massacred some Methodotic forces in the initial moves after the invasion of Greece. Secondly, remember I'm warping and editing events here. This isn't meant to be a full-on, totally accurate account of each movement of the opposing forces. It's a summarised and simplified account of operations in the framework of our fictional miniseries. And thirdly, I've begun to refer to Mithridates' military forces as Mithridatic, and no longer just as Pontic. This is to reflect the increasingly versatile ethnic composition of his forces. 
Adrienne Mayer describes, during a fight against Sulla, the armoured melting pot that the Mithridatic armies truly were. Quote, the clamour of dozens of different languages filled the air. Mithridates had gathered recruits from a vast area. Joining the former Roman slaves, Greeks and pirates, were Thracians, Macedonians, Bastarnae, Sarmatians, Scythians. There were Pontians, Bithynians, Phrygians, Paphlagonians, Cappadocians, Chaldeans, Galatians, Armenians, Medes and Syrians. Some of the eastern groups brought camels, presenting the Romans and their horses with strange sights and stranger smells. Many of the barbarians wore their hair long and adorned themselves with golden, copper and silver earrings, wristlets and necklaces. Warriors from Thrace, Sarmatia, Scythia and Colchis proudly sported extensive tattoos as signs of manhood and battle prowess. A confusing concept for the Romans, who inflicted tattoos to brand slaves and punish runaway soldiers. Swaggering about and shouting out insults and boasts, the barbarian multitude intimidated the Roman soldiers, even though they could not understand their speech. Indeed, so many language and cultural differences posed problems for Mithridates' generals. The unruly barbarians often ignored the chain of command, and even raided towns and villages while they waited for battle to commence. End quote. So meanwhile, as the Battle of Chironea continues, the Mithridatic troops begin fleeing back toward the lower camps. Sulla sees his chance and presses his troops on, but Archelaus bargains on the use of scythe chariots to turn the situation around. Remember the last time a Mithridatic army used this tactic? It was at the Battle of the River Amnias against the Bithynians. It was a deciding factor in that battle. Unfortunately, it's not going to work here. The Romans, far more militarily experienced and hardened, apparently burst into laughter as the chariots struggle across the rocky, uneven landscape. The legions simply sidestep their paths and then butcher the drivers from behind. The Romans now see the Mithridatic forces are trying to reassemble into some sort of order with thousands of former Roman slaves freed by Mithridates at the front of the line. The legions jeer and taunt the slaves, who are bursting with hatred for their former masters. They allegedly fight savagely against them. And this is going to be heavy going. Our camera is right in the centre of the action, blood splattering onto the lens. Soldiers slip and smash their heads open on jagged rocks. The Mithridatic forces attempt one last assault, but blinded by dust and hampered by constricted space, they are torn apart by the disciplined Romans. An attempt by Archelaus to break the Roman right flank fails, and Sulla, galloping from the extreme sides of both flanks, successfully breaks the Mithridatic attacks up. The Mithridatic forces take huge losses here. They're supposed to have fielded 120,000 men. Now, it's quite possible this is a massive exaggeration but nonetheless they must have lost tens of thousands of men. Mithridates, already reeling from the loss of his favourite son, is devastated at the news of yet another defeat of such magnitude. But he manages to raise another huge army and sends his old friend Darylus to Greece with 80,000 fresh troops. Time and again, Mithridates would astound his enemies by quickly replenishing lost armies after seemingly crippling defeats. His ability to do this speaks to many of his qualities as a leader. Organisation, 
charisma and strength of will. But despite Mithridates' woes, Sulla is also having some major issues of his own. His political enemies back in Rome, the faction led by Marius and Cinna, have seized power. They've slaughtered many of his supporters and revoked his command of the Mithridatic War. The Marian faction sends Flacius and his lieutenant Fimbria to take over the legions in Greece and assume control of the war effort, by force if necessary. Lucius Valerius Flaccus was a staunch supporter of the Marian Cinna faction and thereby a sworn enemy of Sulla. He was made governor of the Roman province of Asia and marched there with two legions. His lieutenant, Gaius Flavius Fimbria, was a Roman soldier and loyal supporter of the Marian Cinna faction as well. Fimbria was a violent and bloodthirsty individual. He was a key hitman for the Sulla faction and assassinated multiple political figures during this savage civil war. Sulla's now like a dog with two bones to eat. He's got the pro-Marian Flaccus and his legions approaching from the west to relieve him of his command and probably try and kill him. Then he's got the Royalist, Mithridates' bestie, landing in the east with a large and fresh army, to be joined by Archelaus, who's barely escaped the slaughter at Chironea with his life. Sulla decides to deal with the Mithridatic armies first. The final confrontation of the Greek campaign and the last slaughter fest of episode 5 will take place at the Battle of Orchomenus. Sulla begins to dig trenches in order to funnel the Mithridatic cavalry into narrow corridors, but a fast-paced charge by Archelaus's cavalry rattles the Roman troops and almost breaks through the Roman right flank, until Sulla inspires his troops to hold the line. Allegedly, Sulla shouts at them, Romans, I'll win an honourable death here without you. When they ask you where you betrayed your commander, you'll have to tell them about Orchomenus. That's just a great line, isn't it? That's real Hollywood, you know, grit behind the teeth kind of statement. Is it true? I mean, we don't know. When we're dealing with direct quotes from figures from 2,000 years ago, again, let's take it with a pinch of salt. But nonetheless, it's a great moment for our HBO highlight reel. And it works. The Roman legions hold the right flank, resulting in a desperate attempt by the Mithridatic chariots to smash into the centre. However, the Roman trenches, lined with sharp objects, cause the chariots to panic and double back the way they came. In doing this, they end up colliding with their own centre line. The Romans now pin the Mithridatic forces back against their own coastal campsite. The barbarian archers from the Mithridatic side get so close to the Romans that they're forced to wield their arrows like swords. As night falls and the fighting breaks off, the Royalists and Archelaus count 15,000 dead Mithridatic troops. This bloodbath isn't over though. Our viewers, having been subjected to almost two uninterrupted battlefield episodes now, must be as fatigued as the soldiers fighting are. The next morning, Sulla orders his men to finish the job. In an excerpt from The Poison King, Adrienne Mayer depicts the final morning of the Mithridatic War in Greece. Quote, Tasting blood, Sulla fell upon the decimated enemy camp the next morning, exhorting his men to finish the job once and for all. He had to make certain that Archelaus could not escape yet again and raise yet another army. Archelaus roused his men and the terrible last battle began. His defenders leaped down from a wooden parapet and stood with their swords drawn against a cohort of Romans advancing behind their shields. 
For an excruciatingly long moment, no one moved. The standoff seemed to last forever. Suddenly, the spell was broken. A daring Roman soldier dashed out and shot down the man in front of him. Then all hell broke loose. Mithridates' second grand army was driven into the marshes that Archelaus strove to avoid. Many barbarians fell into deep pools and drowned. Others perished as they pleaded for mercy in their strange tongues, mocked by their slayers. The corpses of Mithridates' warriors choked the stagnant ponds. Their commander, Archelaus, was presumed dead. End quote. Isn't that an incredible selection of imagery? The two opposing groups staring at each other, unsure of who's going to make the first move, the moment of silence that hangs in the air, the darting of the eyes, the beads of sweat on foreheads, the iron grip on the handle of a sword. We've had moments like this already. The Royalists' strike team and the group of Magi. Remember they surprised each other during the takeover of Ikazari Castle? Things feel a little different now, though. You can't slice through hardened, disciplined Roman legions like you can some drunk sorcerers. The Mithridatic troops, from an exotic multitude of locations and ethnicities, drowning in bog pools, begging for mercy from the Romans. There's some stark imagery here of unbridled savagery. Mithridates' dreams of a glorious Greco-Persian empire are causing untold suffering and butchery. This brings us to the conclusion of episode 5 of this podcast series on the life of Mithridates. There has been a multitude of horrors and savage battles as the forces of East and West, Mithridates and Rome, clash across the expanses of Greece and Anatolia. Mithridates' revolution has been blunted, but murderous internal division back in Rome threatens their ability to continue the war too. I hope you'll tune in next time to see what happens next. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you soon. To subscribe to this podcast, just search for the Historical Motion Picture Organization on whatever platform you use and hopefully you'll find me there. If you want to follow the podcast on social media, you can find me on Twitter by searching at HMPO podcast or on Instagram with the handle HMPO underscore podcast. You can find the show on YouTube by searching HMPO podcast and you can contact me directly by email at hmpo.podcast at gmail.com. Growing a podcast from humble beginnings is a very difficult thing to do, so if you can support the HMPO in any way, it would mean a lot to me. You can do this by following me on social media, you can share the podcast with even one other person, and you can subscribe to me and give me a good rating on whatever platform you listen on. I will really appreciate it, so thank you for listening, thank you for your support, and I hope you'll join me again soon in the ancient past.